Welcome to the BitBlockBoom podcast. I'm your host and the producer of the BitBlockBoom conference. My name is Gary Leland. Just for reference, I also produce the 4-Minute Crypto Show and the Crypto Cousins podcast. But you can find everything I produce, including BitBlockBoom, at CryptoPodcaster.com. Now, in August, I'll host the third BitBlockBoom conference in Dallas, Texas, with the help of some of my friends. If you're interested in Bitcoin, you really need to visit BitBlockBoom.com today and take a look at the great speaker lineup and all the events that are going on around BitBlockBoom. It's starting to turn into a week event. I wouldn't be surprised if in two years it is a whole week. Now, BitBlockBoom is a Bitcoin conference, and I really do mean a true Bitcoin conference. We don't talk about crypto. We don't talk about blockchain. We talk about Bitcoin, and that's it. If you are a Bitcoiner, you really should attend. Now, if you do end up buying a ticket, use the code word COUSINS, C-O-U-S-I-N-S, when purchasing your tickets, and you'll receive 30% off the price of this year's event. On this episode, I'm featuring Saifedean Amusa's session from the 2019 conference. He kicked it off, and the conference's session name is titled Fiat Money and Fiat Food. This was another great session. I'm sure you're going to enjoy listening. Let's go to it now. Okay, thank you, everybody, for joining. Thank you so much, Gary, for inviting me. This is uh, always um, fun to be in Texas, and especially to share meat and Bitcoin talk with meat eaters and Bitcoiners. And that is the topic of today's talk. That is the topic of my presentation today, actually. I'm sure, you know, some of you have heard that Bitcoiners kind of like meat, and it's a joke that everybody always talks about. But today I'm sticking my neck out and trying to explain why this actually is the case. Why it's really not such a coincidence that um, Bitcoiners like so much meat. So why is it that Bitcoiners really like meat? And I think, you know, the, the strange thing about this question is that there's nothing strange about liking meat. Bitcoin is a very diverse thing and in real diversity. It's something that people from all over the world, from all cultures are using. And if there's one thing that unites human beings all over the world, whoever they are, is that they all eat meat. It's the one thing that is common to all human cultures. And so I really recommend this book by a dentist called Weston Price, who was a Canadian who traveled around the world about 100 years ago and wrote a truly, truly revolutionary and important book. I think of it as like the uh, human action of nutrition. He's like the Mises of nutrition as far as I'm concerned. And in his book, the book is quite unique and will never be repeated as a scientific experiment because he was able to travel in that short window of time where the airplane was invented, so he was able to use the airplane to travel, but the airplane was not widely used enough for people around the world to have already, and in many places, to have integrated into global trade. So he was able to travel all over the world and visit locations where people, you know, the same population, genetically very similar, some of them had access to trade and modern food, and some of them, different tribes, had no access to it, and so they lived on traditional foods. So Inuits in the north of Canada, Pacific Islanders, Africans, North Americans, Latin Americans, South Americans, people from all over the world, from people from Switzerland, you know, an isolated valley in Switzerland that didn't trade food with the rest of the world versus integrated Swiss populations that were eating it. And he set out thinking that he was going to find, you know, this idyllic vegetarian diet that uh, traditional societies had. And he found there isn't a single culture in the world that had a traditional vegetarian diet. Not only that, but he found that every culture in the world Essentially, their diet was just how to get the most animal fat into your body 
um, given the geographic circumstances that you're in. So the fight to eat more meat is really just what nutrition is all about. And the impact that moving from traditional foods to modern foods on people's health is astonishing because you see, you know, the populations, they're very similar genetically, but the ones that were eating flour and sugar and processed food, they had all these modern ailments that most other people didn't really have. And so I think the better question then is, why is it that people who like crappy food also like crappy money? Or why is it that fiat money makes for fiat food? There's nothing curious about Bitcoiners liking meat, but what is it about the no-coiners that attracts them to all this garbage food? Why? I think that's the real question that we need to address. And to do that, I have assembled a series of hypotheses, and I'm going to discuss what they have to do. So the first one concerns time preference and soil depletion. If you remember from my book, you know, the discussion of time preference, the better the money is at holding value, the more people are likely to think of the future, the more people are able to calculate for the future because they know they have something that they can keep with the future. So that encourages long-term orientation. On the other hand, when money loses its value, people don't have the ability to plan for the future. And so they think more of a short-term uh, perspective. And so you can see this, think about the impact that it would have on farmers. As a farmer, uh, you know, farming land, plowing the land is obviously necessary for planting food, but it is highly destructive of the soil quality over time. You know, the plow makes food out of land, but it also destroys the land and it requires massive reinvestment in the land. And so really the difference between grazing cattle and growing crops is a difference in time orientation. Grazing cattle will maintain the health of the soil, but it won't allow you a big cash windfall in the short run. It'll provide you small amounts of money for the long term effectively. So, but um, plowing the land and growing crops basically uh, takes out all the nutrients in the land and puts them on the market for one big payday, you know, two, three, four, five, six years, and then the soil is dead, essentially. So if you were more long-term inclined, if you had a lower time preference, you're more likely to think of the long-term health of the land and to uh, value long-term returns. The shorter your time horizon, the higher your time preference, the more likely you are to prefer the kind of economic activity that would deplete the soil in the short run and give you a big return in the short run. And so because of that, you see how in the 20th century we move more and more toward monocropping and mass industrial agriculture, which is the quick high time preference way of making money out of land. And the consequence of it, of course, is that land gets uh, destroyed. The soil quality is destroyed after that. And so... You know, now the only way that land can make food is you need to put extensive fertilizers on it. You need all these artificial fertilizers, which is, uh, you know, plowing and fertilizing by farmers is just trying to recreate what cows and other large mammals do anyway in the land by fertilizing it naturally and tilling it with their feet. So uh, this is why, you know, historically people rotate crops, incidentally. So that has been lost because people are so short-termist about it. And as a result, everybody's just growing all these crops. Uh, crops. And because of industrialization and all these new modern machines, we're able to strip the nutrients out of the land much faster than we ever could. And that's what's destroying the quality of the land. And I think it's interesting here to compare thinking of a place like the US versus Switzerland, which I always bring up in these examples because it's the last society to have hard money, really. And if you think about the, the quality of the soil, you know, if you flew, flew, if you ever flew over Switzerland, the entire country's blanket of green with cows 
running around everywhere and eating. Although recently they're starting to get cornfields and other kinds of things because, you know, they're off the gold standard now. But, uh, you know, you fly over America and you see just mass monocropping fields. And it's, it's all, it, it almost looks like a factory more than land. And it's, it's stripped soil. You know, this is dead soil. This would not grow food except if you add fertilizer to it. And, you know, uh, th there's a lot of work on this, um, on, you know, the relationship between the, soil, the health of the soil and the health of the people. I think it's absolutely no coincidence. The Swiss people are the healthiest or the slimmest people, the lowest BMI in Europe. They're the it's the country in Europe that has the lowest level of uh, obesity. Um, the U.S., on the other hand, uh, you know, the soil is depleted and people's health is massively suffering. And even though, you know, people think of the U.S. as being obese, uh, obesity is a, is a function of malnourishment. Obesity is a form of malnourishment. And so as we move more toward um, also the other aspect, the other theory is in terms of food decisions, this is pretty straightforward. If you think about the future a lot, you know, you're more likely to eat healthy things. If you don't care, if you high time preference, you're more likely to eat Twinkies and Doritos every day. And you see this, uh, I think, you know, all around us. Uh, but of course, it's not just that. It's also government playing an active role. Remember, you know, government money allows governments to have access to a money printer that gives them all the wealth that they want. And so it's no coincidence that now your government wants to tell you what to eat and how much of it to eat. And it's quite astonishing that if you look at the roots of U.S. dietary policy, to a very large extent, it's, it's been captured by a religious movement that in the late 19th century, particularly the Seventh-day Adventists, as one of their religious leaders saw a vision about, you know, having to stop people from eating meat. And it's astonishing to think just how powerful this thing is. If you actually read about the establishment of the American Dietetics Association and all kinds of organizations, the Seventh-day Adventists have had a program over many, many, many decades of trying to influence government policy. And they've been quite successful at it, of trying to formulate policy to get people to stop eating meat and trying to rail against meat. Now, I don't, I'm not a theology expert and, you know, uh, it's uh, all kinds of religions believe all kinds of different things. That's not the point. The point is that because of government intervention, people who have uh, religious beliefs on diet can enforce them on everybody else by taking over these government agencies. And in particular, you know, the ADA, the American Dietetics Association, is quite influential. It can put people in jail if they hand out dietary advice without a license from them. That's no joke. So, you know, when you think about why your nutritionist tells you to eat grain and so on, remember that, you know, they need to keep their license from organizations that are motivated by this. And it's, it's, it's quite astonishing the amount of influence that they have. And of course, you know, the other side of it is the industrial food uh, producers or the producers of industrial agriculture. And then we see the influence of government-funded science. So somebody like Ansel Keys, who was, a, who was a, you know, uh, basically a marketer for industrial food who came up with a ridiculous study uh, to explain why fat is bad. He looked at consumption of margarine and called that fat. And then he looked at, he had data for 22 countries. He picked seven. And then he plotted the seven that gave him this relationship. And since then, this is why your doctor and your uh, nutritionist are telling you to cut down on fat. It's this exact, it's really seriously this stupid. Seven out of 22 countries picked based on margarine consumption. And margarine is industrial sludge. It's not food. It's not fat. It's, it's you know, you shouldn't feed it to your dog. Um, they looked at data for the consumption of this and basically concluded that, well, 
fat is bad for you, fat causes heart disease. And this is 50 years of a crusade against animal fats was based on this thing. Why did this study get so much play? Because industrial food producers like it, because there are very low margins on meat, but a lot of margins on industrial stuff that you can produce with mass uh, production techniques. Harvard University, we must mention, the prime fiat university of the U.S., uh, their nutrition department was established by a guy called Frederick Stair, and he used to say Coca-Cola is a healthy in-between meals snack. He was one of the people who introduced this silly idea, which you hear all of um, modern mainstream media, junk media, fiat media, repeat about, you know, you will need to have moderation, moderation. And of course, under moderation, it doesn't matter how many cupcakes and Doritos you have, it's all fine as long as it's moderate. But no matter what amount of fatty meat you have, it's immoderate, it's too much. You know, you're always having too much meat, you're always having not enough Doritos. That's how moderation always works. And so, you know, these kind of ideas, you look at how much money he was receiving from industrial food producers and how influential Harvard was at setting up dietary guidelines. And you see just how much government money is important in determining how much people eat. Because, you know, schools and national, uh, everything, everything is based on this. And you see this. The modern guidelines that were made by Harvard based on Ansel Keys' study started in effect in the 1970s, as you can see there. And since then, obesity and uh, extreme obesity have taken off in the U.S. like nowhere before. And uh, this is, you know, there's a clear link in all the data around that period in the late 70s or the mid 70s where this takeoff begins to happen. And I don't think it's a coincidence. It's the same time that the government started telling you that eating meat is bad for you and eating uh, sugar in moderation is part of a healthy, nutritious, balanced uh, lifestyle or whatever it is that they say. And then, of course, there's the fiat farm policy, what government did to promote the production of mass junk-produced food, and particularly the relationship with this in the 1970s. I highly recommend checking out a film called uh, King Corn about a man called Earl Butts. You may have heard of him. He was the um, Secretary of Agriculture under Nixon. And this, you know, under Nixon, when the U.S. went, finally removed the final link of convertibility between gold and the dollar, you know, in the 70s witnessed mass inflation, the price of everything went up, including the price of food. And of course, for most people, the most uh, essential thing they consume is food. And so that was a very politically unpopular move. So, you know, how do you fix the problem of inflation of the price of food rising up too much because you printed too much money? You know, if you're saying you think, well, stop printing money. But obviously, that's not what politicians do. You fix the problem of the price of food rising by simply substituting food with junk. And then people will eat cheap junk and then the price of food will go down, right? That's essentially what the US did in the 1970s. That's how inflation was fought. Earl Butts essentially told farmers, go, get big or get out. There was no more room for small farmers. There was no more room for people growing actual food. We needed all these um, mass farms that employed very high-scale capital and machines that would till the land as powerful as possible, take out as much nutrients as possible, make the corn as big as possible, make everything bigger and cheaper. You know, it, it, it essentially introduced industrialization into farming. And the role of the Department of Agriculture in introducing this is enormous. This was not a free market idea. You know, people keep talking about, well, capitalism feeds people all this junk food. It wasn't capitalism that fed those people the junk food. It was capitalism that, it, it was government and fiat credit policy in particular that favored the large farmers at the expense of the small farmers because the large farmers were able to bring in mass industrial equipment into farming. 
And so the result of this was you brought down food prices essentially by bringing down the quality of the food. You made bigger corn that had less nutrients, but it was cheaper by the pound. And so you ended up getting a lot more calories and a lot less nutrients, but paying only a little bit more food. And so the inflation looks like it's okay. And that's really, you know, when people talk about where's the inflation, where's the inflation, the inflation is in the quality of the food. And I think my favorite example of it is this. Imagine if you live in a world in which, you know, you get paid $10 a day, hypothetically, and you buy a steak every day for $10 a day, and that's your diet. So the CPI, if we measure the CPI, when government measures the CPI, they'll tell you that, you know, the average consumer basket of goods is $10 in this economy. Now imagine if the price of, uh, you know, the value of the dollar collapses, the price of the steak goes up to $100, your wage doesn't go up because your boss isn't connected to the magic money printer of the government, so he can't give you a raise to 100, he's still giving you $10. So what has happened to inflation as measured by the CPI? You only have $10, so you can't buy a steak. So what do you do? You buy a soy burger for $20, or for $10, let's say. So, look, zero inflation, right? The consumer basket of goods that you had previously was $10 for lunch. Today, you're still paying $10 for lunch. So, inflation is zero. That's effectively how you can think of how inflation is brought down. As long as you don't mind substituting your ribeye for a soy burger, inflation is fine. And, you know, we're on the way of the soy burgers just becoming closer and closer to the exact quality of the lowest quality and cheapest dog food available in the supermarket. And that's essentially how inflation is going to be kept under check. You know, we're just going to continue to pretend that, you know, sludge is food. And then if you just pretend sludge is food and don't notice the health impacts that it does to you, there's no inflation. That's essentially how it works. So I think in my mind, these are really the main seven fiat foods that have benefited enormously from government subsidies government farm policy and government dietary guidelines, refined flour, sugar, industrial oils, high fructose corn syrup, soy protein, low fat foods, and breakfast cereals. These things did not exist before the 20th century. Sugar was extremely expensive and extremely hard to find. Flour was also, uh, you know, it's also pretty recent. But these things only became popularized because they're high industrial, you can make them industrially and that can make their costs manageable. And so governments all over the world have financed and popularized this because essentially it's a great way to keep people um, eating cheaply and to hide the uh, inflation that uh, causes it. In celebration of that, being in glorious Texas, the land of glorious steak, today we're having a dinner that is going to be made up of 24 ounce steak plus only meat for appetizers and for dessert because it is high time that you know people go back from the days of eating all of that um, junk and to just eating proper real food and I think it's um, it's it's really it's it's astonishing uh, the the, the the levels of the amount of connections that you see with this. And I think it's absolutely no connection that Bitcoiners, once you start thinking of the long term, once you stop believing, you know, what government says on economics, it's completely normal that you would start questioning what they tell you on nutrition and you, that you would find that it is different and that you would not eat based on what they tell you, but rather based on what you think works better for you in the long run. So I think it's, it, it makes complete sense that we see this amongst Bitcoiners. And I think, you know, we should encourage it more and, you know, eat more steak always. And because, you know, this is, this is, I think if we go back to a hard money society, we'd have far less of all these fiat foods and we'd have far more hard money and uh, um, far, far more sound food and good nutritious food.
I'm just going to end by mentioning and plugging my website where I'm now offering classes on the economics of Bitcoin at the Austrian School, as well as my book, The Bitcoin Standard, which is available in all these languages and will soon be translated to the ones below. And at 1.30, I'm going to be signing my book and uh, selling a few copies if you are interested. Thank you very much, everybody. I hope you enjoyed Safe Session. If you want to find out more about Safedine, I've recorded two interviews with him on the Crypto Cousins podcast at, well, CryptoCousins.com, of course. You may want to listen to those interviews. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing. And it wouldn't hurt if you shared the BitBlock Boom podcast with your friends. Thanks for listening to this episode of the BitBlock Boom podcast. And make sure and take a look at next year's lineup at bitblockboom.com. I hope I get to meet you in person in Dallas at this year's conference. Have a good one.